As we get into the 1500s, the Renaissance has been going on for roughly 200 years. Especially Europe has been rediscovering the knowledge from the Greeks and from the Romans. And as they enter into the 16th century, they start to go beyond the knowledge of the Greeks and the Romans. In 1543, Nicolaus Copernicus publishes on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, famous for suggesting that Earth is not the center of the universe, but that the Earth revolves around the sun. What was powerful about this is it challenged centuries-old ideas about how the universe worked. And at a meta level, it was about using new methods and evidence in order to make conclusions no matter how revolutionary those conclusions might be. And this publication is often cited as the beginning of what will be known as the scientific revolution. Many people view the capstone of the scientific revolution to be Newton's publication of Principia in 1687. And this is an incredibly powerful publication. It describes the laws of the universe. It's a universe in which most things can be explained with simple principles with mathematics. This is so powerful that it would not be challenged for over 200 years until Albert Einstein comes on the scene with his theories of relativity. But even today, Newton's laws, this is what is taught in a first year physics class. This is what you will learn in an introductory engineering class. So there's many things to think about. Why did this happen at this period in time? How was it related to the Renaissance? How was it related to things that were happening in politics in Europe at the time? But needless to say, it gave humanity a new perspective on the universe. And it gave humanity new powers, and we began to challenge all assumptions. And so as we get into the late 1600s and early 1700s, people start trying to use these same tools, the same deductive reasoning on some of the oldest questions that humanity has ever asked itself. Questions like, what rights do we have as human beings? Who gets those rights? What duty and obligation do we have towards each other? What is the role of government? Who has the right to rule? Now, some of these questions have been the fodder of philosophers and religion for thousands of years. But now there was the power and the tools and the challenging notions of the scientific revolution. And this philosophical movement that is really tied to the scientific revolution is known as the Enlightenment. And just to have an example of the thinking during the Enlightenment. Here is a passage from John Locke, who's considered one of the pillars of the Enlightenment. This is published in 1689. It's the second treatise concerning civil government. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone. And reason, which is that law, so reason is the law of nature to govern it, teaches all mankind who will but consult it that being all equal and independent, No one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. And when his own preservation comes not in competition, ought he, as much as he can, to preserve the rest of mankind, and may not, unless it be to do justice on an offender, take away or impair the life, or what tends to the preservation of the life, 
the liberty, health, limb, or goods of another. Now, to parse what he's saying, he says that reason is this natural law that should govern human action. And he's saying no one ought to harm anyone else. And that if we're not in competition, maybe there's only enough food for one of us and there's two of us there, in which case we'd be in competition. But if there isn't that competition, we should be trying to help each other. And we should be trying to preserve the rest of mankind. And unless it's for the purpose of justice, you don't have the right to take away or impair the life or things that help preserve the life, the liberty, the health, limb, or goods of another. Now you might say, hey, isn't this common sense? And religions for all of time have touched on some of these issues. But you also have to appreciate that this is a time when kings and emperors ruled the world. What gave them that right? Why are certain people slaves and other people not slaves? Why do certain people in that world have a right to own these other people? And so this was a very controversial idea, challenging some of these fundamental notions of who should rule, who has the right to rule, and to what degree should people exert control over one another. So given these challenging notions of the Enlightenment, and John Locke was only one of the actors who would figure prominently in this roughly 100-year period, it's no surprise that as you get into the late 1700s and early 1800s, you have a whole string of revolutions, especially in the Americas, to a large degree inspired by the ideas of the Enlightenment. Things like life, liberty, health, in the United States Declaration of Independence, these things are cited. During the French Revolution, these things are cited. In the various revolutions in Latin America, these ideas are cited. Now, one of the reasons why the Enlightenment came about when it did, not only did we have new tools of thinking and the opportunity to challenge notions, but it might have been that society now had the responsibility to think a little bit deeper about these ideas because it was getting more and more powers through the scientific revolution. And those powers were becoming even more significant when that science was applied during the Industrial Revolution. Now society could produce more than it could ever produce before. But as we talk about in other videos, the Industrial Revolution had a certain hunger for raw materials and a certain hunger for markets in which to sell your finished product. It also allowed for more powerful weapons and ways to project power and to control a larger empire, methods of communication, methods of force. And many historians tie it directly to the age of imperialism, where especially Western European powers sought areas to get raw materials and markets in which they could push their finished products. And so as the industrialized world had more and more power, these ideas of the Enlightenment became maybe even more relevant, even though they might not have been implemented consistently during the age of imperialism. And as we've seen in other videos, even though the technology keeps accelerating during the Industrial Revolution, the philosophy and the moral framework does not accelerate along with it. And in the 20th century, we see one of the bloodiest centuries in all of human history. So let me leave you with a final series of questions. As we go into the 1800s, we talked about the various independence movements, especially in the Americas. We also have the abolishing of slavery in most of the world around this time period. And so to some degree, it looks like the ideas of the Enlightenment are coming to be. But at the exact same time, you have the age of imperialism, where more and more control is exerted over people around the planet. This all comes to a head in World War I, which is one of the bloodiest conflicts in all of human history. 
So to what degree did the Enlightenment help the world, and to what degree did it not get fulfilled? Or maybe in some way, things like World War I and World War II were the birthing pangs, the transition state from the world before the Enlightenment, and how close are we truly to those ideals today? In a future video, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the idea of human rights and how we as a civilization have attempted to address it after World War II. Welcome to the show. You might want to pull up a chair. Um, this will be broken down into segments. We have a show producer, Archie, who has really helped to expand what we're able to do in shows. And I will save my comments for the very end about this. Today's show is going to cover several things. I've been looking into how this all got started. Well, after the show I did about the Morrisons, I went to take a look at the Tavistock aspect of this. Tavistock was a group in um, the UK, and I got very engaged in Tavistock, but Tavistock isn't what started all this, okay? Tavistock is a result of what got going on, because Tavistock was only around in the early 1900s. So how did this thinking get started? Well, I have been looking into this era called the Era of Enlightenment. Enlightenment, like waking up, right? And so because Tavistock can't be explained until I explain what the Era of Enlightenment happened, right? So how did we get to Tavistock, which really was the... Well, I'll get there later. But Tavistock essentially was when they kicked into full speed gear on our psychological manipulation between the wars and all of that, but not right now. First, we're going to talk about enlightenment, that era, okay? And as part of this, I will also be covering a segment on UNESCO. I've been talking about UNESCO and those old buildings. Also, how did we start thinking about races? Well, there was an era of racial thinking that I want to cover. So, um, uh, we have a lot of things that were put in our path to help us with our thinking, right? To model our thinking. I view this as they were modeling our thinking to get us to think we should be more like them. If you can unpack that deal. So today I'll also be covering a couple of people that they refer to as key thought leaders in this field. A person called Kant, K-A-N-T, and a person called Hegel who is noted as one of the most influential philosophical people into this whole thing we have going on now. So anyhow, so I think this is to model us to accept and be like them. But of course, having free will, everybody needs to think for themselves. Because, for example, right now we have all these millionaires and billionaires. That who... That is who I see the majority of the public emulating their behavior and seeing how they got there as a good thing. And also, it is shown as a possibility that any of us could also achieve this illuminated status of all this rich fame and fortune. Well, people have to decide, why are you here? Are you here to be like these people, or are you here to help figure out 
how we got here. It is two distinct groups of people, okay? The people who are here to be more like them are the people who are out spending money, investing in Bitcoin and all of that because they want you to be like them because while they do that, they're robbing you, okay? Because you don't rob somebody always with a mask or a weapon. You rob them by taking away a part of their soul, the part that makes them a person, right? You, you get them to develop their same, their same levels of greed and ability to trample on the rest of us. So I see this as a tremendous amount of people are also modeling this kind of behavior. In the world of about 6.5 billion people that we know of, and these numbers may be completely false too, right? I'm not saying there's really 6.5 billion people here right now. There is a group of people so rich and so wealthy that the numbers are staggering. There are now 793 people who have the title of billionaire, said with an exclamation point, like this is something we should all be going after to attain. Somehow, I don't get the idea that everybody going after money is going to be getting such a great deal in the end here, but I'll save that for the end. Seeking money at your own risk is how I see it. <clears throat> but everybody has to decide, why are you here? Why are any of us here? Very individual decisions to make. These billionaire people live a luxury life that can go beyond words. The world is their luxury playground, and they have all the money to do or buy as they please. It is true. It truly is the ultimate lifestyle of the rich and famous. They went on to say, as a billionaire, your luxury lifestyle is also shielded from public life. But everything you do is on a grand scale. Mega homes, private jets, super yachts, fine jewelry, and around the world luxury travel. So who are some of these people that everybody wants to be like? Well, as of 2022, Jeff Bezos. You want to be short and bald like him? You can be Jeff Bezos. He's now worth $197 billion. Now, this wealth has shifted dramatically this year in 2022. So this is a list that I'm going off of who held on to their titles, okay? Elon Musk, net worth $190 billion. He's getting his uh, money mainly from the government. All those space things, that is government money. All the car things, Elon Musk plays into the crypto world. He buys and shares crypto to trick all the young people. Elon Musk is the young version of the gypsy out to rob the other young people. Look, you can be rich like Elon Musk. He started from nothing. Well... None of that is ever true, but hey, whoever looks, right? So all the kids want to be Elon Musk. So if he wants to manipulate the public into Bitcoins or whatever coins he's pushing, he moves the market. He's in the number two spot. Number three, I didn't know who they were specifically, so I looked them up. Bernard Alnault, net worth $177.7 billion. He's the CEO of Louis Vuitton. There's money in that luxury business, right? Have you ever noticed anything going on here? We have luxury goods. We have luxury vacations. We can go visit old luxurious castles. Um, 
every way to part you from your money and your family. If people spent vacation time relaxing and enjoying each other, maybe people wouldn't be so engaged in social media right now. Maybe all those trips to castles and stuff was a big trip. Trick. Maybe buying that Louis Vuitton bag wasn't in your best interest with the times that are coming ahead. It is all a way to manipulate and control. So anyway, so I looked a little bit into him. And um, there's lots of money in those luxury goods, right? How did he make all that money? Well, I'm not going to go through his entire history. But basically, he was born 5th of March, 1949, in Roubaix, France. His mother, Marie Savinel, had a fascination for Dior. <laughs> His father was a manufacturer. At some point, because of this early deal with Dior, he was able to rise to the top of Paris. And now he owns all of the luxury goods in the name of that Louis Vuitton business. The stuff that people stand in line for hours to buy. Now, Louis Vuitton is hanging on by their teeth because they have, um, they were having some trouble and all of that, but they're still extraordinarily wealthy. But anyways, let me see. Anat saw his wealth shrink by $30 billion as sales of luxury goods plummeted. On 5th of August, 2020 run, he regained the status of wealthiest man in the world. How did he do that? Well, same way they're going to do it with diamonds and gold. This occurred, this rise, this rise back up to the billions because Louis Vuitton's luxury goods surged in China and other parts of Asia. So yeah, so that's how it works. Sell here until they've sold us all they can sell and then move on to China and the third world countries to sell their garbage. Okay, so that's them. Um, that's the wealthiest people. There's more, but I'm not really that interested at this point. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't care about him. Oh, he, he formed his holding company with Guinness. Love that beer, right? Talk about a way to harm your system, beer. Okay, everybody worries about all their problems, but they don't realize beer and these things have all these fermented things which will never make you healthy so anyhow so you know he's got an initial thing i'm not that engaged with him but who are the top richest countries in the world well interestingly enough number one qatar all that oil right well something is going on with this country and the oil business because i have a file open on the oil business here and Nothing adds up, okay? Absolutely nothing. I mean, this country supposedly is the largest producer of oil in the world. So, fishy, fishy deals. Qatar is number one. Macau, number two. Luxembourg, Singapore. Ireland is in there. Norway, UAE, Kuwait, and Hong Kong. So, yeah. Um, and then, of course, to prop up the rich... We have another group of rich who are emerging now, and they are acting like we need to pay taxes. Stop making the little people angry. So how are they doing that? Well, they just wrote an open letter, and they want to give it to the people in Davos. You know, the one people in Davos, the 102 of them, 
excuse me, this letter was from 102 of them. Would they want to send a message to the crowd at Davos who meet every year to talk about how to organize our lives better? They all fly to Davos once a year on their private jets to talk about how to manage the rest of us. That's the basic line with Davos. So now to show us that the rich really do care. Well, some of the rich care. That, that's the idea, right? So people are starting to turn on the Davos crowd. So how does that work out? Well, you bring in another group of rich people who act like they're against the Davos crowd. <sighs> and when I get to some of this stuff about the Enlightenment and all that went on, these are ways that they modeled our thinking, okay? This kind of behavior. So they published, there were 102 rich individuals who published an open letter, and just real recently, I don't know, the last few days or whatever, including such prominent figures as Disney heiress Abigail Disney and venture capitalist Nick Hanauer. See, these people always come to their senses, right? And you'll understand more when I talk about the um, Tavistock and their gender thing. Everybody who is in part of these deals, they make all the money, they do all the harm, but once they have gotten what they want and get out of it, then they become the rebels of the group, right? They become the ones, ones saying, oh, the rest of those people that I was fairly and very heavily entrenched with are doing bad things. So I want to show you the light. It is always about controlled opposition all the way through, right? If I could just get people to understand a few things. A, everybody at the top is a transgender person. B, all of the women are really men, and they're also, all of them are wearing wigs, okay? Wigs. If you just understand the wig game, you will understand how to identify these people a lot quicker. They're either bald like Bezos, or they're rocking a wig. One of the two. Or if they're in the Middle East, they're wearing a turban around their head to hide the fact they're bald, probably. So anyway, so this letter... Uh, they warned that history paints a pretty bleak picture of what the end game of extremely unequal societies look like. For all of our well-being, rich and poor alike, it's time to confront inequality and choose to tax the rich, the letter reads. Show the people of the world that you deserve their trust. The letter was released hours after analysis conducted in the fight inequality analysis. So these, these groups have started this fight inequality alliance, okay? The Institute for Policy Studies, Oxfam, and Patriotic Billionaires. They show that a modest annual wealth tax targeting the world's millionaires and billionaires would raise $2.52 trillion a year, enough to lift billions of people out of poverty and vaccinate the world against COVID-19. So I guess people can't be lifted out of poverty unless we tie the vaccine deal together. <laughs> but signatories to the new letter note that such a solution is unlikely to win broad support among attendees at the World Economic Forum. See, everybody also focuses at these leaders at this World Economic Forum, okay, Klaus and all these leaders. I believe these people are evil puppeteers. I don't believe that they're, they're the ones really running things. Do we really think 
the evil ones, the psychopaths that are actually running all this are showing their faces up on camera? Well, if they're showing their faces up on camera, it's not in a way that we would recognize them to be the head evil ones in this, all this, right? Just think logically. If you were the evil one manipulating the entire world right now, would you make your face known to everybody? I would say, of course not. That would be crazy, right? Even from me, a crazy person would think that was crazy. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, all these wonderful groups, Oxfam, Patriot Millionaires, yeah, they're, they're all on our side. Sure, I got it. Okay, by signatories, but signatories to the new letter note that such a solution is unlikely to win broad support among attendees. So yeah, um, the yearly gathering of global elites that's typically held in Davos, Switzerland, due to the coronavirus pandemic, this year's WEF is taking place virtually. They also have a YouTube channel called the WEF, and they broadcast all of their little um, segments of this thing. Right there, you can go watch them. If you find anybody there who's not evil or transgender, just tap me on the shoulder and let me know who they are, okay? I'd be very interested in looking. Okay, so, the letter went on to say, if you're participating in the w World Economics Forum, the WEF, online at Davos this January, you're going to be joining an exclusive group of people looking for an answer to the question behind this year's theme. How do we work together and restore trust? The letter reads, You're not going to find the answer in a private forum surrounded by other millionaires and billionaires and the world's most powerful people. If you're paying attention, you'll find that you're part of the problem. The letter signed by rich individuals from Denmark, Germany, Austria, and other nations continues. Trust in politics, in society, trust in one another is not built in tiny side rooms only acceptable by the very richest and most powerful. It's not built by billionaire space travelers who make a fortune out of a pandemic but pay almost nothing in taxes and provide poor wages for their workers. Trust is built through accountability through well-oiled, fair, and open democracies that provide good services and support all of their citizens. See, you could only really build trust if any of this democracy were actually true to begin with. <laughs> and the bedrock of a strong democracy is a fair tax system. A fair tax system. As this, this is them saying it, not me. As millionaires, we know that the current tax system is not fair. Most of us can say that. While the world has gone through an immense amount of suffering in the last two years, we have actually seen our wealth rise during the pandemic. Yet very few, if any of us, can honestly say that we pay our fair share in taxes. To put it simply, Restoring trust requires taxing the rich. The world, every country in it, must demand the rich pay their fair share. Tax us, the rich, and tax us now. 
made significantly worse by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, skyrocketing income, and wealth inequality has been at the heart of mass protest movements in South America, the Middle East, Europe, and the United States, and elsewhere. Now, I'm not sure these are all grassroots uprising, because they say they have frequently been met with brutal police repression. I see these groups as CIA staged protests because that is what they do, right? They see that we're concerned about something, they stage a bunch of protests, and they also want to drag us out to those protests. If anybody was ever paying attention, you'd notice the patterns. All everybody's favorite friends on YouTube all carry the same message. They want us to go out and protest things. Well, I mean, good luck doing that if you can live with having your ankles broken or your head bashed in with a billy club because these are all staged events. All of these groups are staged. And for some reason, they think that we're stupid enough to go out and get involved in the middle of it, which a lot of people are stupid enough to do that. (laughs) They didn't get that stupid on purpose. It's been all this programming, thinking that protesting is a good idea. So, and you'll understand more when I get to the whole deal about Karl Marx and that whole part of this, and and that that whole part of this entitlement thinking that came into play. According, I'll continue this letter. According to an Oxfam analysis published earlier this week, the ten richest men in the world have seen their combined fortunes grow more than 1.2 billion per day since the coronavirus epidemic while tens of millions worldwide have been pushed into poverty. Part of the plan, not the bug in the system. Progressive advocates and lawmakers have long argued that raising taxes on the rich, while far from a panacea for deep-seated society ills, would help rein in soaring inequalities and raise revenue for governments to spend on alleviating poverty also providing universal health care and meeting other basic needs. The issue with this argument is it is the plan for all these things to happen to the rest of us. So anyways, um, somebody from the UK said, A common value most people share, if that it's something's not fair, then it's not right. But tax systems the world over have unfairness built in. So why should people trust them? They are asked to shoulder they are asked to shoulder our shared economic burden again and again, while the richest people watch their wealth and their comfort continue to rise. It's time we right the wrongs of an unequal world. It's time to tax the rich. Well yeah. If you believe any of this, then good luck. You're taking way too many stupid pills, is what I would argue. And so anyways, they have, I'll just close out here with, they have all of us to all of this um, enlightenment era was all about enlightening us, right? And this is kind of skipping ahead, but it's right here in front of me, so I'll read it to you. What has been the end result to all of this? Enlightenment, and I'll be getting back to the history of that in a bit here with all this other stuff. So, what do we as a people think if we're enlightened, right? Well, we think of happiness. The enlightened person is happy and joyful. 
He has a cheerful disposition most of the time and is willing to share that joy with others. He is always optimistic of all challenges. Don't get in the way of this happy person because <laughs> they're obviously not dealing in reality, okay? A enlightened person is also peaceful and serene. The enlightened person is peaceful and serene because he is free of fear and other unwholesome emotions. He can see that the human condition reaches beyond this physical existence, so he no longer has a fear of the unknown. Now, people have just adapted fears from what they've been given by these people, because if you think you shouldn't be afraid, but internally you are afraid, does that make you an enlightened person or a conflicted person? This is something to think about. An enlightened person is loving, kind, and compassionate for two main reasons. He genuinely cares about other people, regardless of whether they care about him. And he knows what other people provide him with spiritual nourishment. No, you don't know that. You don't know anything but what you know, right? Here's where we start to conflate our thoughts, everybody else's thoughts. Unless you're a mind reader, and I would argue most of us are not, you don't know all these things about other people. This is where the trick is. If you think all these other people are rich, fabulous, having a wonderful time, then that makes things that you're going through not anything you're even thinking about, right? Because you have focused your energy on what these other people are doing. And that is where you're looking for your own happiness. The enlightened person is emotionally stable because he no longer has an ego that needs validation for his existence. Well, because the person has now given up who they were as a person to the common goal. Just with this message of there's a war, we must all sacrifice. Things are tight. We must all tighten our belts. So people are very confused in the middle there because their programming has led them to believe that this was all about we, okay? We as a culture, we as a group of people. Well, no, that all shifted when the psychopaths got in charge in the 1800s or whenever this thing actually happened. Everything that we were got flipped onto their heads, and I'll get back to more of that when I explain how this enlightened spirit thing went on. So how we got here and these attitudes is because of what they set into gear when they did get in charge. And it's a very interesting story. So that story will continue on. Pull up a chair. It's pretty easy to date stamp things. I date stamp everything I look at. Just take out a piece of paper. And when I get to that category, jot down the time and what the title was. There's a lot of data here, so you can then go back and review things at your own leisure. So anyways, continuing on here. Okay, let's take a look at UNESCO. It keeps coming up in this these files, so it's more than just old buildings. So let me get into UNESCO, and then I can get this off of my file. Okay, UNESCO, I've talked about them in the show about the buildings. Okay, UNESCO is the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. UNESCO, okay. Uh, it's a specialized agency of the United Nations, and it is a lot more than just rounding up those old buildings. <laughs> so let's take a little bit of a look and understand what UNESCO is. Okay, 
It's a specialized agency of the United Nations, UN, aimed at promoting world peace and security through the international cooperation in education, arts, sciences, and culture. It has 193 member states and 11 associate members, as well as partners in the non-governmental, intergovernmental, and private sector. It's headquarters at the World Heritage Center in Paris, France. UNESCO has 53 regional offices. UNESCO was formed, founded in 1945 as a successor to the League of Nations. Before it was the United Nations, it was called the League of Nations, okay? And it was also the International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation. Its constitution enables the agency's goals, governing structure, and operational framework. UNESCO's founding mission, which was shaped by the Second World War, is to advance peace, sustainable development, and human rights by facilitating collaboration and dialogue among nations. Yeah, just who you want to put in the middle of your dialogue, <laughs> the people from UNESCO. It pursues the, this objective through five major program areas. Education, natural sciences, social human sciences, culture, and communication and information. UNESCO sponsors projects that improve literacy, provide technical training and education, and also to advance science. UNESCO's early work in the field of education included the pilot program on fundamental education in Maribai Valley, Haiti, started in 1947. UNESCO's early activities in culture included the Nubai campaign launched in 1960. The purpose of the campaign was to move the Great Temple of Abu Simbai to keep it from being swamped by the Nile after the construction of the Aswan Dam, A-S-W-A-N Dam. During the 20-year campaign, 22 monuments and architectural complexes were relocated. This was the first and largest in a series of campaigns where architectural complexes were relocated. This was the first Oh, I read that part. The first and largest in a series, including one in Pakistan, the Fez one in Morocco, the one there was one in Nepal, one in Indonesia, and one in Greece. I'm not the Acropolis in Greece. The rest of I'll try not to even try to pronounce. So they focused on those countries. Interestingly enough, right? And this Fez deal in Morocco is interesting because who wears Fez hats? Well, <laughs> Fez hats are worn by a division of these Masonic people who were very early into the hospital business. They started the, let me go from memory here. The people who wear Fez hats were early Masonic people. Now, you could be a Masonic member but you were not a member of this group that wore the Fez hats, the red Fez hats, F-E-Z hats, or those tall red hats. Yeah, uh, 
So early on, they started the special deal with the Masons, and they spun off into a group called the Shriners. And the Shriners are in the hospital business, and hopefully one of these days I'll get back to them. But yeah, the Shriners are indicated by their Fez hats. So I've been looking at, you know, there's a lot of Moorish design in these buildings. I'm mainly seeing um, Gothic, this other Romanesque, and then also the influence of the Moors and the people who wear these Fez hats. <laughs> so, yeah. Noses and hats are actually kind of interesting in what I've been tracking through research. And I have some data here on their noses and the fact that they love those noses, but somewhere it's buried in one of my files here. So anyway, so the organization's work on heritages led to the adoption in 1972 of the Convention Concerning the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage. And remember, by 1972, most people who were born in the 1800s were officially dead, okay? Because, like, my grandparents, born in that era, died in the 1970s. So pretty much we have a clean slate of people from the 1800s once we hit 1972, if you're following my thinking here. So, yeah, that group makes more sense because the early homesteaders would all be dead by the early 1970s, right? So, if it means anything, I don't know. It's just rattling around my brain right now that it certainly 1970s was a very good time for a clean slate, right? Out with all the old people, in with the new crowd. So, um, the world hair, the, the convention concerning the protection of the world culture and natural heritage. So, the committee was started in 1976. And the first sites, they came up with the first list in 1978. So, uh, yeah, they've had a lot going on here. They've had a program called Migration Museums Initiative, promoting the establishment of museums for cultural dialogue with migrant populations. Um, UNESCO CEPES really caught my attention. UNESCO CEPES, C-E-P-E-S, the European Center for Higher Education. Well, where was that established? Well, it was established in 1972 in Bucharest, Romania, as a decentralized office to promote international cooperation in higher education. And this was for Europe, Canada, the United States, and Israel. Funny how it's kind of tucked away here, hidden over there in Bucharest, they were talking about higher education through UNESCO. So, yeah, they also developed their goodwill ambassadors, all those celebrities flying to third world countries. Wherever you see a great deal of poverty, a great deal of oppression, look at African countries, there you will find UNESCO. In there, too, of course, it's only for peace, as we know. So anyway, let me see anything else here about UNESCO that I'm going to cover right now. Um, oh, this is good. The UNESCO Collection of Representative Works, translating works of world literature, both to and from multiple languages, from 1948 to 2005. So, uh, yeah, UNESCO is really up to a lot, right? So let's not overlook the United Nations. And UNESCO actually 
falls out from things I'll be talking about in other areas today, like all these new ways of thinking, these new advanced ways of enlightenment that they had for all of us. So that pretty much, unless I can say any more, sums up what the deal is with UNESCO. on we had a group called racial thinkers which fell out of this enlightenment period so let's take a look at who they are and see what they have to say for themselves um there is a group called um the scientists who were looking at um racism um and this feeds into some of the stuff that i'm talking about as far as the enlightenment so let me just scan through a few things here. Um, the term scientific racism is generally used pejoratively when applied to more modern theories, such as those in the bell curve. The bell curve was written in 1994. Critics argue that such works postulate racist conclusions, such as genetic connections between race and intelligence that they say are unsupported by available evidence. So publications such as the Mankind Quarterly found it explicitly as a race-conscious journal are generally regarded as platforms of scientific racism because they publish fringe interpretations of human evolution. So yeah, so they have these whole theories having to do with human evolution, genetics, and anthropology and their little deal about racism. So let's take a look at, um, during the Age of Enlightenment, and that's the era from the 1650s to the 1780s, the concepts of mono, monogenism and polygenism became popular though they would be systematically, I can't even pronounce these words. So anyways, modernism contends that all races have a single origin, okay? Polygenism is the idea that each race has a separate origin. Until the 18th century, the words race and species were interchangeable. So I'll start off with the first ones they're talking about, and then I have, this is a very old file, so I will then buzz through to what it's all about now. First name that came up was a Francis Bernier from 1620 to 1688, was a French physician and traveler. In 1684, he published a brief essay dividing humanity in what he called races distinguishing individuals and particularly women by skin color and a few other physical traits. He published an article in the Journal des Savants, which I believe means Journal of Savages. Savants, maybe, maybe smart people. <laughs> They're always smart, aren't they? The earliest scientific journal published in Europe. So this Journal des Savants was the earliest published journal that we have here, right? It was titled New Division of the Earth by the Different Species or Races of Man that Inhabited It. It went on to um, distinguish four different races. The first race included populations from Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, India, 
Southeast Asia, and the Americas. The second race consisted of the Sub-Saharan Africans. The third race consisted of the East and Northeastern Asians. And the fourth race were Sami people, S-A-M-I people. The emphasis on different kinds of female beauty can be explained because the essay was a product of French salon culture. So this essay, which identified these four things and women were emphasized, had to do with the beauty of women. Bernier emphasized that his novel classification was based on his personal experience as a traveler in different parts of the world. Bernier offered a distinction between essential genetic differences and accidental ones that depended on environmental factors. He also suggested that the later criterion might be relevant to distinguishable subtroops. So his biology was called the species of man to classify racially the entirety of humanity, but he did not establish a cultural hierarchy between the so-called traces that he had conceived. On the other hand, he clearly placed white Europeans as a norm from which other races deviated. So that was his early thinking, and that could go on for quite a long time, but let's move along here. Um, We had a guy, Robert Boyle, an early scientist who studied race, and yeah. Well, I'm still interested in how they came up with the different races, like how did they come up with Chinese people? Well, and we have all these cultures of races, you know, there's cultures of people that the whole population is short. This all has to do, in my view, with how they were um, doing the initial early hormone treatments, right? Um, Why they would lock up the communist countries, this push toward communism, which was a very much part of my generation, this whole fear of communism. Well, I see that as ways to lock up and get these different races organized within different countries. But I have a lot of thinking to do on that, so I was I have this file on early work about races. <laughs> so, and because this early work about races also feeds into the subject for today, which is where did all this enlightenment come from? <laughs> what is the history of step? So anyways, then interest, there was another guy who I thought was interesting, this Lord Combs, K-A-M-E-S. He was a Scottish lawyer from 1696. Now, all of this stuff really could have been backed up and really been done earlier than we know of. I'm only relaying the dates as I know them now, okay? So this Scottish, Scottish lawyer was a polygenist. That means he believed God had created different races on earth in separate regions. In his 1734 book called Sketches on the History of Man, Holm claimed that the environment, climate, or state of society could not account for racial differences. So the races must have come from distinct separate stocks. And yes, I agree with this. And the reason I think that is because of the way they organize things around communism, right? So if we look at locking up different countries under the fake claim of communism, we can start to breed different stocks of people, right? So, um, 
Then there was a guy named Carl Linus. He was from 1707 to 1778. He was a Swedish physician, a botanist, and zoologist. And he modified the established basis of all these things with facial features and stuff, okay? He labeled five varieties of human species, each one described as possessing the following characteristics, varying by culture and place. Okay, the first one was the Americans. Red, choleric, upright, black, straight, thick hair, nostrils flayed, flared, face beat, beardless, stubborn, zealous. I guess this is the Americus. That was probably the whoever. The Europeanus. They were white, yellowish, long hair, and I don't know the name. The Africans. Um, relaxed black, frizzled hair, silky skin, flat nose. They really have ideas about everything, don't they? Um, so I don't know that those make any hill of beans a sense for right now. I don't know why I had it there, but anyway, so um, I'm going to move along here um, to dates that I can now kind of get my head around, right? There was a significant guy named Charles White, 1728 to 1813. An English physician and surgeon believed that races occupied different stations in the great chain of being. And he tried to scientifically prove that human races, races have distinct origins from each other. He believed that whites and Negroes had two different species. White was a believer in polygeny, that's a belief in different races. The idea that different races had been created separately. His account of the regular graduation of man from 1799 provided an empirical basis for this idea. So yeah, I think that I agree that it did have different stations, and I think that that was rigged by them with all this communism stuff, right? So moving a little closer to our dates here, there was a person named Buffoon <laughs> and Blumerbach, French people, and the German autonomous Johann Blumerbach. They were around from the mid-1750s to 1840. They were proponents of monogeism, the concept that all races have a single origin. I think this is probably what we're looking at, right? Both said that Adam and Eve were white and that other races came about by degeneration owning by environmental factors, such as climate, disease, and diet. Yeah, they did put us into groups based on client, disease, and diet, didn't they, climate? According to this model, uh, Negroid pig pigmentation arose, arose because of the heat of the tropical sun. That cold wind caused the tawny color of the Eskimos, and that the Chinese had fairer skin than the Tartars, because the former kept mostly in towns and were pr protected by environmental factors. So they're saying these early Tartars um, stayed in towns so they had better skin. Environmental factors, poverty, and hybridization could make racers degenerate. Of course, poverty is a big factor, right? So 
they tried to dif- differentiate between the white races and um they said there this guy said Blumerbach, the German dude, said that there were there are five races, all belonging to a single species. Caucasian, Mongolian, Negroid, American, and the Malay race. So yeah, he said his first place to be Caucasians. Yeah, I don't know about any of this. I think this was just setting up white supremacy, if you ask me. But okay, so um, another interesting view: Benjamin Rush from 1745 to 1813, a founding father of the United States and a physician, proposed that being black was a hereditary skin disease which he called Negroidism, and that it could be cured. Rush believed non-whites were really white underneath it, but they were stricken with a non-contagious form of leprosy, which darkened their skin color. Rush drew the conclusion that whites should not tyrannize over blacks, for their disease should entitle them to a double portion of humanity. However, by the same token, whites should not intermarry with them, for this would tend to infect posterity, and the disorder attempts must be made to cure. So yeah, don't mate with the blacks, because you might get this form of leprosy. That was the thinking in 1813. Charles Meeners, 1747 to 1810, was a German polygenist and believed that each race had a separate origin. Always trying to separate us, right? All this stuff about races have separate origins. There's confusion over when people are born. Are they even in that gender? All this confusion, right? Meeners studied the physical, mental, and moral characteristics of each race and built a race hierarchy based on his findings. So, Myers split, this is the German guy, Myers, M-E-I-N-E-R-S, from, he died in 1810. He split it into two divisions, which he labeled the beautiful white race and the ugly black race. In Myers' book called The Outline of History of Mankind, he said that a main characteristic of race is either beauty or ugliness. He thought only the white race to be beautiful. He considered ugly races to be inferior, immoral, and animal-like. He said that the dark, ugly peoples were distinct from the white, were distinct from the white, beautiful people by their sad lack of virtue and their terrible vices, according to Myers. He went on to say, the more intelligent and noble people by nature, the more adaptable, sensitive, delicate, and soft is their body. On the other hand, oh, these sentences. Yeah, he's saying that white people are superior. And um, this is certainly forms a lot of the thinking, right, as far as the races. So was this an intentional ploy to separate races? Well, it is a dual world, right? black and white world. Likely, this is where that thinking of black and white worlds come from, right? Dividing us and conquering us, even by the races. Miners said that Negroes felt less pain than any other race and lacked in emotions. 
Miners wrote that the Negro had thick nerves and thus was not sensitive like the other races. <laughs> They're saying that these other people saying all this are in fact psychopaths, right? So it's very interesting to me the way that they want to slice and dice and define the rest of us into categories. Well, what I see this as, um, and the reason I found it interesting, was early, early influencing our thoughts about each other. How much more divide and conquering can they get but dividing black people from white people? So, yeah, um, also claim the Americans, I, I guess that's the black people, were inferior stock of people, could not adapt. Um, oh, the Americans were the early natives, I think. Um, he said that they were, um, would lapse into deadly Molokai, they drank too much, they were foul. Okay, um, Jefferson, the one that they always talk about as um, having, secretly having slaves while he was opposed to slaves. Well, if Jefferson was really real, then he would have been here between 1743 and 1826. To me, the jury is out on Jefferson, but let me tell you what they say he was. He was an American political scientist and slave owner. His contributions to scientific racism has been noted by many historians, scientists, and scholars. According to an article published in this McGill Journal of Medicine, one of the most influential post-Darwinian racial theorists, Jefferson calls for science to determine the obvious inferiority of African Americans as an important stage of the evolution of scientific racism. So, yeah, Jefferson concluded that blacks were inferior to the whites in the endowments of body and mind. So, um, Jefferson described black people as follows. They seemed to require less sleep. A black, after hard labor throughout the day, will be induced by the slightest amusements to sit up until midnight or later, knowing that they, oh, it's showing that they're careless, that they'll get involved and stay up too late. They are at least as brave and more adventuresome. But this may perhaps proceed from a want, a want of forethought. In other words, they're brave because they can't think straight. Yeah, uh, their griefs are transient. Well, yeah, he... He went on to say, I advance, meaning him, not me, I advance it thereby as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments of both body and mind. By, by 1791, Jefferson had to reassess his earlier suspicions of whether blacks were capable of intelligence. When he was presented with a letter and almanac by Benjamin Bankiser, an educated black mathematician. Delighted to have discovered scientific proof to the existence of black intelligence, Jefferson wrote to this guy. Yeah, I, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, so some black guy points out that this is not true. So anyway, so... Um, there's a lot here. I don't know what's important. Um... George Culver, yeah, um, 
they all thought whites were the superior race, okay? Uh, and uh, up until, I'll look at, uh, there was a scientific classification from 1850 to 1918 we should take a look at. The scientific classification established by Carl Linnaeus is requisite to any human racial classification scheme. In the 19th century, unilinear evolution, or classical social evolution, was a conflation of competing sociological and anthropological theories, proposing that the Western European culture was the acme of human social culture. I don't know. I, I don't understand what they're saying here, so I'm not going to bore you with it. I don't know why. I know why I was looking at some of this, and some of it I'm like, well, okay. Um, you know, when you gather data and then have it for quite a while and look at it again, you think, well, why did I think that was important? Well, I thought it was important, and there's lots that is important, but not all of it seems important right now. So a couple more significant ones was Charles Darwin. Of course, we've all heard of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin's views on race had been a topic of much discussion and debate. So Darwin was a moderate in the 19th century debates about race. He was not a confirmed racist. He was a staunch abolitionist. For example, he did not think there were distinct races that could be ranked in a hierarchy. Darwin's influential 1859 book on the origin of species did not discuss human origins. Maybe because they were a little bit fuzzy at that point, right? <laughs> they were just, with Darwin, they were just now building up their documents of data about how this whole trick worked. Okay. Um, the extended wording on the title page, which adds by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and struggle for life. Um, yeah, they, they talked about them as varieties. And this historian said, although Darwinism was not the primary source of the belligerent ideology and dogmatic racism of the late 19th century, it did become an instrument in the hands of the, the theorists of race and struggle. The Darwinist mood sustained the belief that Anglo-Saxon racial superiority, which obsessed many American thinkers, so yeah, they were all thinking that the whites were the superior race during all that time. Funny how that worked out, right? It's just setting up for a conflicts and stuff, right? And this is... Um, Okay, at the 19th century, Zen, scientific racism conflated Geo-Roman eugenism. Why was that Geo-Roman? Well, a lot of reasons. They called it the missing link. They were all into this apes business. It is all just to diffuse the issue. And there's been a lot of studies about racism and all of that. Bottom line is, it is a lesson in teaching us to hate each other. And I'll cover this little bit about the eugenics and the racism movement because that's what this is all about, right? There is a work out of the passing of the great race in 1916. The most influential tract of American scientific racism in the 1920s and 30s. 
there was the German racial hygiene movement, and that embraced these other movements. And they all get really cloudy for me, okay? So I'm just going to tell you, they all, all of these big racial cleaning things were founded in the German Society for Racial Hygiene, which came out in 1905. The movement advocated selective breeding, compulsory sterilization, and a close alignment of public health with eugenics. This is very key here, right? Because the so-called idea of racial eugenics started with, they are not like us, we should murder them. And everybody will agree, because remember, up until this period, depending on how much of this period is real or not, people were clearly, to me, in their thinking, they were being told that blacks were an inferior, an inferior race. Now, I don't believe the slavery thing. What I'm saying is that the early programming was to identify groups of people who were not like us, groups of people that everybody could look the other way when they underwent eugenics. This, to me, was a juncture of when they started to separate our empathy for each other to the greater good devised and dictated by psychopaths, okay? At this juncture, they were dividing our basic humanity and our ability to congregate and support each other. They did it by this early early, early talking about dividing other races. This is just my opinion, okay? The way to get everybody divided makes sense. First, you start by the racism, right? First, you get everybody looking at these other people as the other people. So when they go and rob places like Africa, deplete the resources and stuff, that is those other people happening to them, right? We're safe, tucked at home here in the United States. See how it all works? And the interesting thing is, they also got the other people in the other countries, the blacks, the ones that they have subverted, they got those people to also think this was a great democracy. So those other people, which we were essentially trained to not like and be suspicious of, are also other people who think that this is still the greatest place on earth that they want to come to. See how the full circle of oppression has been going on? And it's still true to these day that people in these other countries that everybody here decided to look the other way, and by everybody here, I don't mean all of us, okay? I mean the group that went along with this thinking. They were able to then think of them as other people. And it's still going on today. Look at the simple terms. People are looking at these old mental institutions and thinking, oh, those were other people. Things are better now. Those were other people. We were able to look away because those people were identified by these people <laughs> as being suspicious. So really, talk about the wolf in the hen house, right? We've got the wolves, the psychopaths. They have defined which ones of us are crazy who these other people are by their race, their skin color, and all of that. So yeah, it really gets crazy. And they also actually, in this racial thing, and let me wrap this up, this racial thing, uh, it continued through the early 20th century. And soon, intelligence testing became a new source for racial comparison. 
Before World War II, scientific racism remained common to anthropology and was used was used as justification for eugenics programs, compulsory sterilization, anti-misgenerational uh, mis, 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 laws, sorry, that's a hard one, and immigration restrictions in Europe and the United States, all happening right before the war, okay? The war crimes and crimes against humanity of Nazi Germany discredited scientific racism in academia. But racial, racist legislation based upon it remains in some countries until the late 1960s. Well, here, here's where the straw man argument is in this whole thing, okay? As long as everybody could look at the Nazis as being the war criminals against humanity, then everybody can rest assured when they came up with the United Nations and all this early racial testing, everybody could rest assured that we were just about to defeat the big enemy, and that was Nazi Germany. Well, <laughs> I think when you listen to the episode about all these ages of enlightenment, all of the source of all of this, for some rather peculiar reason, seems to emanate from Germany, seems to continue to emanate from Germany, okay? So, yeah, so here's where it's interesting to me is in everybody's minds, they're all thinking, still to this day, be suspicious of anybody from Germany. Well, to me, Germans are other people like myself. But the evil in where the base of evil has happened to have been appears to be still in that region, which has nothing to do with common German people. When you look for research, you look for patterns. And I find a lot of stuff that seems to have originated from Germany. So... Uh, they said that uh, before the 1920s, social scientists agreed that whites were superior to blacks, but they needed a way to prove this to black, to black social policy. They needed to prove this black social policy in favor of whites. The best way to gauge this was through testing intelligence. By interpreting the test to show favor to whites, these test makers researched their results portrayed all minority groups very negatively. In 1908, this Goddard guy translated the Binet intelligence test from French and in 1912 began to apply the testing here. What they used this early testing for was incoming immigrants on Ellis Island. And then I would argue that this testing, if they failed on Ellis Island in testing these people, well, they had another solution, right? If they, if they passed the testing on Ellis Island and still made it into this country and then became rebellious or whatever or wise to what was going on, those institutions were already ready and built. So that's how that worked, right? Some claim that in a study of immigrants, Goddard reached the conclusion that 87% of Russians, 83% of Jews, 80% of Hungarians, 79% of Italians were feeble-minded 
and had a mental age of less than 12. Some have also claimed that this information was taken as evidence by lawmakers, and thus it affected social policy for years. Yeah, early divide and conquer is how I look at it, right? There was a book called The Mismeasure of Man. This guy, Gould, argued that intelligence testing results played a major role in the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924 that restricted immigration to the United States. Okay, they then they studied these congressional records, and they concluded the intelligence testing community did not generally view its findings as favoring restricted immigration policies. Well, I think it was used completely for that, but that's not what I'm going to go over right now because we're just looking at how this was all set up. And um, scientific racism in the United States. It was scientific racism was also used as justification for the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and the Immigration Act of 1924, which imposed racial quotas limiting Italian-Americans' immigration to the United States and immigration from other Southern European and Eastern European nations. Proponents of these quotas who sought to block undesirable immigrants justifying restrictions by invoking scientific racism. You can always prop up your bad ideas by scientists, right? You get a bunch of scientists to say one thing in this psychopath-driven world, and that will give you all the justification. So they've all, it's all set up. So trust the scientists. Trust the doctors. So um, the Stoddard person um, divided world politics into white, yellow, black, Americanized, and brown people. So, yeah, um, they have been at the racial thing for a very long time. So, this was how... Oh, wait, here's something about UNESCO I wanted to say. International bodies, such as UNESCO, attempted to draft resolutions that would summarize the state of scientific knowledge about race, and UNESCO issued calls for the resolution of racial conflicts. Oh, don't they ever, right? In its 1950s, the race question, UNESCO did not reject the idea of a biological basis for racial categories, but instead defined a race as a race from the biological standpoint may therefore be defined as one of the group of populations constituating the species Homo sapiens. So they broadly defined it as Caucasian, Mongoloid, and Negroid races. Well, we're down to three races now, right? The whites, the blacks, and the Chinese. So, funny how that worked out, right? Three races, three things to that little triangle they love so much. Um, it is now generally recognized that intelligence tests do not in themselves enable us. Yeah, well, here's another thing about racism, right? If you suppress a block of people, like, for example, you block off a bunch of Chinese people under communism, sure, you could stiff their uh, intelligence ability because communism limited their ability to read books and do other things. If you want to 
keep all the black people uneducated. You move them to population areas like Mississippi. All these areas get funded by the wealth of the people in them. That's the basic fundamental thing, right? So if you live in a poor area, your education is determined by the taxes paid by those businesses in that poor area. Well, what businesses are in that poor areas? Well, places like Walmart, places like these big oppressive societies that have more people around. So it's fairly straightforward to oppress people. We don't have to look any further than the Appalachia area, right? Then look at the oppression with the blacks. Move them all to Mississippi. Uh, if the, If they don't have a tax base to cover their own education, people do not get educated. That's the basic principle here, okay? That means that people who live in white neighborhoods have more funding for their schools because they have a bigger tax base. So there's many ways that eugenics and oppression have continued on. So onward and upward, I don't see anything else here except for this has been a very well laid out plan to divide and conquer us by races. Get us to think that if a black kid gets shot in a neighborhood by a cop, that black kid had to have been responsible for that cop shooting him in the back because that is how they test us to also think about racism. Why do you think we have all these fake racist psyops going on? Black kids getting shot in the back by cops, right? Then they pull out the riots, they pull out the tanks, and they act like these black people are now standing up for their rights. So what happens? The government comes in with tanks. Can't you see how simple this whole process is? When I worked in Silicon Valley, there were essentially no black people that I interacted with, okay? None. I only interacted with, there was one black guy who was a vice president of human resources at a tech company, was the only black person that I will say that has stood out to me. Black people in the technology world did not exist and still do not exist. Now, obviously, probably more black people in tech, but you show me a black guy running a major corporation, and I will show you somebody who is not really part of the black legacy, okay? That's why black people who, they they have names for them. You know, if if they deal with too many white people, they have name, derogatory names for them. For example, in China, they call white people who shill for the Chinese government, they call them white monkeys. White monkeys, right? That is a derogatory term for people who cross over to the other team. So yeah, there's people who make it in the higher levels of the um, uh, eco-structure here, right? A few black people have made it into running corporations in black America. Not many. Not many, okay? It took until Obama for them to bring in their first so-called black president. So, yeah, this has been a historical thing, but I see it as one of their most effective tools that they have used on all of us in the divide and conquer deal. They've done it with black people and white people and Chinese people, right? Who's everybody suspicious of? Well, <laughs> white people. All the white people are suspicious of the Chinese and the black people, right? 
I'm not saying all of them. I'm just making a blanket statement here. So, yeah, we have been trained to um, degrade other people within our own group of humanity. And it has all been led by the most evil group of all has molded how we thought about these people. So, reach out, be kind to each other. That's the goal here. Don't see each other as black and white. That was how they rigged us up, because they probably rigged up black people to give us a black and white deal. So, yeah, and it made it, it made it, uh, it made it, it made it them the others, same way they made the people in the mental institutions the others. But eventually they had to kind of integrate the people in the mental institutions. So they have held on to the stigmatization of crazy people. They've held on to these theories of black people being dangerous and out to get all the rest of us. So yeah, it's a pretty simple concept if we look at it this right, right? Define the other people as not as smart as the rest of us. Make them the others. So we are all one person. Maybe we should start to behave like we're all one person. Treat each other with a tiny bit of kindness. That's all that it would take. Reach out. Smiles and friendliness do not cost a single dime. Okay, this is going very, very long here. So what I'm going to be doing is, in the beginning I said I'd be talking about this Kant person and the Weigel person, but I will be getting to them later because there's just too much data because I need to pull it back here a little bit. The age of enlightenment, which I keep wanting to say the age of entitlement, I think there's some similarities there. Anyhow, the age of entitlement often was also referred to as the age of reason, okay? So let me give you a little bit of history of the age of reason, and this will start to make sense when I can get back and talk about the leaders of this thought movement, which were this Kant person and this Weigel person. So, the worship of reason is what it was called. And that was France's first established state-sponsored atheistic religion intended as a replacement for Catholicism during the French Revolution. So they had this thing called the worship of reason, okay? And it was pretended to replace the rulers of the Catholic Church and whatnot. After holding sway for barely a year in 1794, it was officially replaced by the revival cult of the Supreme Being. So both both cults were officially banned in 1802 by Napoleon Bonaparte. So yeah, the Age of Reason, or the Enlightenment, was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 17th to 19th century. So... What what happened was it was considered a secular religion is a communal belief system that often rejects or neglects the metaphysical aspects of the supernatural, commonly associated with traditional religion. So what they're saying is religious beliefs 
replace aspects of the supernatural. I guess replacing things like that we lived before, that we, you know, came with instincts and stuff. That was all getting replaced. So, but instead of placing typical religious qualities in earthly entities, among systems that have been characterized as secular religions are capitalism, nationalism, internationalism, Nazism, fascism, feminism, communism, Maoism, Juke, progressivism, futurism, transhumanism, religion of humanity, Jacobinism, and the cult of reason and the cult of supreme being that, let me scroll up here, that developed after the French Revolution. So after the French Revolution, all of those self-focused things became a thing. And um, a temple of reason. There was a, um, it was a temple for a new belief system created to replace Christianity. It was called the Cult of Reason, which was based on the ideals of reason, virtue, and liberty. This religion was supposed to be universal and to spread the ideas of revolution. Well, how'd that work out, right? Which was also inscribed on the temples. According to the conservative critics of the French Revolution, within the Temple of Reason, atheism was enthroned. So um, they wrote that during this time, the symbols of Christianity were covered up and they were replaced by the symbols of the cult of reason. In the churches of reason, there were specially created services that were meant to replace the Christian liturgy. What is a cult? Well, a cult can be defined as a system of religion, religious, and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. A relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. Yeah, I think we're living in a cult, if you ask me. But anyways, um, they did a thing first in Notre Dame for this, this first thing of reason. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris on 10 November 1793 a special ritual was held for the Feast of Reasons. The Nave had an impoverished, improvised mountain on which stood a Greek temple dedicated to philosophy and dedicated, decorated with busts of philosophers. At the base of the mountain was located an altar dedicated to reason, in front of which was located a torch of truth. The ceremony included the crowd paying homage to an opera singer dressed in blue, white, red, the colors of the Republic. Her, she was personifying the goddess of liberty. The concept of liberty has frequently been represented by personifications, often loosely shown as a female classical goddess. Examples of this goddess of liberty include Marianne, the national personification of the French Republic, and its values of liberté, the female liberty portrayed on the United States 
coins for well over a century. So we had that female liberty on our coins here, right? These descend from images of ancient Roman coins of the Roman goddess Libertas and from various developments from the Renaissance onwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in 1886, Statue of Liberty, a well-known example in art, a gift from France to the United States. So yes, I will um, get back to all of us because this question of what is enlightenment is a monstrous deal in all of this. And it started from an essay from 1784 from a fellow named Emmanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, and his buddy, that Weigel person, also had a lot to say about all this. So in this show, I've covered the racial thing and all that. So we'll get back to this. Remember, support is not a requirement, but it certainly would be a nice gesture. Goodbye for now. Crazy world full of crazy contradictions like a child First you drive me wild and then you Temperamental as a summer storm Just when I believe your heart's getting warmer You're cold and you're cool And I, like a fool, try to cope Try to Ride. But I've got my pride.